episode number 155 of the Speech Science Podcast is brought to you by Presence Learning. And on our website right now, you can sign up to win a chance to get one year of their therapy essentials. But Marie, do you remember how hard it was to change jobs or when you first got into this field, all of the career options? Oh, it's like starting over every time. Well, you can take control and get your life in balance. Teletherapy offers a powerful career choice to let you practice at the top of your license with flexibility and scheduling to adjust your caseload up or down as needed and the ability to serve a broad range of students within a supportive community of professional colleagues. That sounds fantastic. To learn more about the benefits of teletherapy and joining the largest community of teletherapists, visit presencelearning.com to read their new blog post, Five Reasons for a Teletherapy Career. The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy, policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The views and opinions of the show do not constitute recommendations for therapy. Please, Please contact, contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or names. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we belong. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 155. I'm Matt Hott, an SLP that works in the schools and in home health care with dementia and stroke rehab located in Cincinnati, home of the AFC champs and second place Cincinnati Bengals joined uh, this week. Uh, Michelle Wintering, our pediatric expert down in Texas, uh, is taking care of her own pediatric children this week. Uh, so she will not be joining us. So I will go around the horn and from the top to the bottom, the PTSD SLP herself, Rachel Archambault. Hi, everyone. In Florida, right? Mm -hmm. Hello, yep. Rachel. Hi. And then our adult medical expert, Marie Severson, up in Wisconsin. Greetings. I got it right. And then the executive functioning expert in the great, almost great state of Pennsylvania, Michael McLeod. What's up, Mike? What's up, Asha? Aw. So this week, I'm excited because we have a couple great articles. We're going to talk about a study that is changing the way that we look at preschool. It's the return of SS Pod News. Also a longitudinal, longitudinal, say that word five times fast, a longitudinal, anyway, a long study on the effect of the well-being and cognitive abilities. And of course, we have our SS Pod shout outs and the due process, and we want to hear from you. So head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com is the email or speechsciencepodcast com. The new website is up there, and I gave everyone that sent me their emails access. Have you guys had a chance to mess around with the website yet? I'm too scared to touch anything. I'm leaving okay. it. That's fair. <laughs> I made an edit. I did it. You made an edit. I made so, an edit. Okay. So 
before we get to how your weeks are, I want to tell you how my week has been. So I watched the Bengals lose, and that's okay. I'm just glad uh, Joe Burrow can still walk. And then Valentine's Day happened. And my wife and I, I always buy my wife flowers anyway. I just buy her flowers. It makes her happy. That's what I do. So, But I never get flowers on Valentine's Day just because they're all marked up way expensive tonight i walked in the door with three giant bouquets of flowers that sold on valentine's day for a hundred dollars and i paid 12 bucks for them so i'm winning that's a deal wow right and then my daughter got mad because she couldn't hold any of the flowers so that's how my week has been mike how has your week been it was your birthday i believe you have now what 35 35 35 man 36 dude come on (laughs) hey man i'm 36 turning 37 so i i asked a couple of my students like how old do you think i am now i got a range of 22 to 75 (laughs) 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 and these are high school students and the one dude who said 75 was dead serious. He was not joking. He was like, I feel like back. you need to work on some problem solving skills with those kids, Mike. Hey, I respect it, man. man You're an age shapeshifter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a youthful, awesome, a youthful elderly man. They're using context clues. They see that your hair is gray and they assume a very youthful 75. That's right. Mike, That's I right. think you should go to our merchandise website and order yourself a speech science notebook and give it to each of those kids so they know how old you are. You can sign your birthday on the inside of that. I think that would <laughs> confirm me being 75. <laughs> Did you like my terrible product placement right there in the middle of that ad? Yeah. Awful. Well done, especially since no one can see it. <laughs> Good point. It is radio. But is it a really nice hardback speech science uh, notebook? Look at that. I like it. I uh, that is nice. That does, that does look nice. Well done, Matt. Hey, we sold a shirt this week. So Woo! there we go. Someone's yeah, doing that. That was me, actually. Was it really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, Rachel, how has your week been? My week has been good. Um, so Valentine's Day for me is a little bit different that I talk about what happened on February 14th, but I have to say it was a very positive day. It was the best day that I've had in a long time. Um, on that day, um, I celebrated. I did Valentine's Day with my friends. Like it was a reason to celebrate that day. So I had therapy earlier today. I was super proud of myself and, you know, it just felt very natural. It wasn't like I was trying, but Valentine's day was very good. So, um, yeah. I was listening to another podcast and I think it was the WTF with Mark Barron. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, what can, what was it? It was like something I wish I knew younger. And it was, uh, if I wish I could have gone to therapy when I was younger, when I knew what there was no stigma to it. That's true. And I think I said that on the last podcast too, of like things you would have liked to. Were you the one I was yes. listening to? You compared me to <laughs> Marin. We, oh my God, I love him, but. Okay, I thought married. it was Mark Marin, but might have it was Rachel Archambault. There we go. So I've been yes. editing our show and I listened to a great person on another podcast that was this one, evidently. Yeah. So yeah, I said that last week that I, okay. uh, something stigmatized. It was something stigmatized mm, that I right. feel should be done more often or something. And I said therapy. So definitely. See, it stuck with me. I just gave the wrong attribution <laughs> to the wrong podcast host. I'm sorry, but, Rachel. It's okay. I'm honored to be compared to Mark Marin. I love the fact that I just gave you your own advice back. Like, you <laughs> and I thought I was being smart. Like You mansplained mm-hmm. to me, Matt. Is that mansplaining uh-uh. or is no, that no, just no. like no. podcast? podcasts that was definitely 
<laughs> I don't know. Oh, man, I can't get out of that hole. Marie, how's your week been? Save us. I forgive you. Thank you. Um, I also had a Galentine's and it was fantastic. Ooh. My husband and I don't really celebrate Valentine's Day, but I love getting together with my friends. Um, can we talk about work stuff at all in this segment? Oh, yeah. If whatever you oh, want. Okay. I just... I, I pitch it as not work stuff. So that way you don't feel obligated to say I did therapy this week. So I finished a Montessori dementia certification, which I'm excited about. Ooh, yeah. Awesome. I'm excited to use some of it in my private practice. So I was feeling pretty good about that this week. All right. So educate me. What is this Montessori? What is it? So You've heard of Montessori method for children, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's very similarly applied to adults with dementia. It's just taking a more of approach of looking at the whole person and setting up their environment in a way that they would prefer and letting them have free reign of various activities that they could use and giving some of that choice back to them. I'm super excited to talk to you about that, Marie. And um, I follow, I think, Deepa Snow on TikTok. And I, that's a whole new world that's opened up to me. And I'm actually going to be presenting on trauma-informed care across settings over the summer. And I, that's ama- I would love to learn more about that certification and, and everything. I think that's amazing. We'll talk about it. Yeah. I just saw, we, we were talking before the show aired about like doom scrolling or whatever you want to call it on Reddit. And somebody had posted on Reddit, there was some nursing home Uh, And you reminded me when you said you set it up the way they want to. Some nursing home in England or Europe went to the patient's home and took pictures of their front door and then printed it out to cover up their room door with a picture of their like home, their former home's front door. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Some little things that we can do for our adult patients, which surprisingly, it's not that much different than what we do for cognitive therapy for middle school and high school kids. I can't speak for the early childhood because uh, I don't do that, but I'm sure it's not that much different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. And from there, you can recognize somebody doing something awesome. And that is the SS pod shout out. And this week I came across this story uh, through one of the Facebook groups. I'm assuming it was SS or the speech S whatever uncensored SLPs uncensored. I think it was, or is SLPs at large, but uh, uh, Williamsburg speech language pathologist, Laurel Lalu Lalu. I apologize that I just butchered your last name so bad, but basically someone told her that she should reach out uh, to a news agency and let them know what she's doing. And the Virginia Gazette Gazette, uh, wrote a story about her, about doing home health care and supporting children and their parents going into their homes. So Laurel, awesome job. You get the SS Pod shout out this week. All right, Laurel. Good job. Do we have that article? Uh, yes. So I'm going to link it uh, into the story, but they talk about uh, her traveling around and what it looked like during uh, COVID and what some of her therapy stuff looks like. But I just love the idea that we talk about all the time, how do we get people to know what we do or care what we do? And oh man, wouldn't it be nice if, and she took the idea of, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, and ran with it and said, hey, local news, here's what I do. Come find out more. And and you know what? Shout out to the Virginia Gazette as well for running an article 
uh, about someone doing their job. And it's awesome. Yeah, that's great initiative. Great for the field. And she started her private practice back in October. So uh, Marie, you're a private practice owner, right? That's right. And I go into homes as well. Mike, you're a private practice owner. Mm -hmm. Like, it's kind of cool to get a recognition, but what was something that you did in your private practices when you started that you were like, whoo boy, that was a waste of energy, money, space, something. I went the opposite <laughs> so, direction. I didn't go with, oh my gosh, loop. what was something fun? That's I went a loaded with the, question, dude. What was something that you should not have done? I always like hearing these goofy things. Was it painting something that didn't need to be painted? Was it buying a table that none of the kids ever played with? You oh, know, if, if I can think of something, although it sort of undermines your question, but undermine it away. I <laughs> took a very conservative approach to starting my private practice. And I think my only regret is just not taking more initiative more quickly and not marketing more and just sort Ooh, of okay. taking a, a step, sort of like a, a sit back and wait approach, just because I was really nervous and felt like I didn't know what to do or how to do it. And, um, had to sort of learn as I went. So I didn't like, I didn't purchase anything big. I didn't like spend a lot of money on marketing. I didn't do anything big because I was too scared. And I think that's, that can sometimes be a drawback too. I remember when we first opened my first clinic, not the one we have now, the one that was on the third floor. Uh, one thing that we didn't think ahead was how thin the walls were between the rooms. <laughs> so we can, you can hear the other session between the rooms. So that really affected the kids. So we had to like buy this spray that you spray the wall to like insulate sound. Oh. Uh, so that was something that we did not think ahead of. Mike, you just made me think of, and Marie, you'll appreciate this doing home healthcare. I went into a nursing home facility, like an assisted living facility to work with a patient. And my patient was hard of hearing and I talked loud anyway. So we were talking really loud. And then the neighbor started pounding on the door or the wall yelling at us to shut up because their show was on. Oh. <laughs> so thin walls made me think of that. But no, huge shout out to Laurel and her uh, initiative to get herself uh, recognized in the Virginia Gazette. On the opposite side, though, is... The SS Pod due process. It's your opportunity to bring to us the Court of Appeals. It's the four of us tonight. Uh, something that is really bugging you. And this one came from an Instagram post that somehow we missed uh, over the summer last year. Um, it was like a comment that I saw on the Facebook uh, link to Instagram. And it said, my district only wants to use iPads for YouTube and not as speech generating devices. What can they do? It was kind of a vague, but I thought a wonderful due process. So uh, that's where you almost like this. I'm a big like proponent. Is it proponent? I'm a big fan of two different iPads, a YouTube iPad and a communication iPad, especially in school districts and especially with students that have a hard time transitioning from one to to the other. But I'd love to hear what you guys think. Can you read that one more time? Yeah, my district only wants to use the iPads for YouTube and not as a speech device. For, for, the, yeah. for the speech students? Mm -hmm. Well, just that, in general, just iPads in general. I'm guessing 
probably a room. I can send you the link on the Instagram post, but. That's tough. I mean, if people have more than one iPad to spare, like I, I don't think that things should be dictated what goes on them. Um, I, I know a lot of SLPs that have their own iPads that they bought with their own money, that they bought a trial of, you know, Proloquo or something like that, a speech generating device, but they also use it for YouTube. But with our district, if you have a child that needs an AAC device, then it is only used for AAC and they use the guided access um, feature on the iPads to prevent them from going out, going on YouTube, going on other things, or only certain things are approved. Um, if it's truly meant to be a speech generating device only. I don't know how someone could say my district is only uh, wants one device for this, one device for something else. Um, I don't get it. I don't get how that could be done. Is there any, Mike, from the executive functioning standpoint, is there any loss of skill or is it a better skill or whatever to be able to transition from communication device to, I guess, preferred activity on the same device? Is there any like skill set? Yeah, yeah, of course. That's actually one of the skills that's measured on the brief checklist, the behavior Mm -hmm. rating inventory. So that's shift, being able to shift your attention from preferred to non-preferred and do a transition. Uh, So if, if an iPad is used for YouTube, and it's the same type of iPad, same iPad, same shape, same case, same everything as the communication device, there's a lot of kids that are only gonna want that YouTube iPad. Uh, and you know, you would probably ask yourself, why is that really even needed in the schools? I don't think any of us went to school with YouTube. Uh, so you, uh, the question is- uh, I have an opinion why? on that. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What's your hot take, bro? Uh, bad teachers or bad paraprofessionals that want the kids to be quiet. So they put them on YouTube in the corner during class lessons because they act okay, well, that's, too loud. That's a dereliction of duty in, in and of itself. That's, that's, that's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. So I'm not, dis- other, not disagreeing. You know, it's just, you know. Yeah, but that's, if we're, if we're talking about students that need an AAC device to communicate, but there's other devices in the classroom that are solely used for YouTube, that's a problem. Yeah. And there are educational things on YouTube. Like there are good things that kids can be learning on YouTube. I, I know I'm personally, uh, when I work with students that have AAC devices and you have teachers that, you know, give it to them for a minute to pick something and then they put the AAC de- device away, you're removing the kid's voice for a while if they depend on that. So they should technically have a speech output device in front of them all day um, and not switching of it or have access to a speech output device as well as like the YouTube device. But I don't, I think some districts might not have any iPads. And, and I guess it's interesting for this question, if this person was provided two iPads, are you providing two different iPads for me? One for this specific purpose and one as an AAC device? for all these students, it, it's, I need to know more context of right. who's providing it, who's paying for it, what students need it. Right. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> hey, Correct. man, that's why, that's why, what was it last week or two weeks ago when we had the, uh, the due process question about resumes, we brought that person on air so we could get more information about how to write your resume. So 
if you have a due process and you want to be on air, we would love to have you. You know what, though? Uh, as you were talking about this, the thing that always bugs me about people taking, well, I mean, it bugs me when any time you take away a communication device. But what really bugs me, what really sticks in my crawl is like, I can kind of see why a teacher or an aide doesn't get how to use a device when they're learning social science or history or math. Like I can kind of understand where the teacher's struggling or science. I can understand the struggle, you know, cause it's, it takes a lot of effort to try to figure that one out. But I always get confused of why they take it away in art class when literally 99% of what they're doing in art class is requesting colors to use it or scissors or certain paper. Like that is the easiest spot to use a device in. So get, it just made uh, me think of that when you said they take away the device. It makes I mean, if they're working with paint and stuff, I think many people, especially with, with iPads provided by districts and you have like, some of these AAC devices are like $17,000. Like True. it's not just, so when you have someone that's like, I'm responsible for this piece of equipment and I have to make sure that it's in good condition and everything, I can understand not bringing it into an art class, even though that's not right for the student. If they need to communicate what they need, uh, there's a balance there. And you can put a screen protector, you can do all this stuff. Uh, uh, what's a bumper thing and it comes with a handle. Saran wrap that too so there, there's ways of art proofing it i guess but realistically a child needs to have an aac device all the time can you tell i never even thought about spilling paint on a device i was just like yeah just take it with you like who cares how much it gets in the way so yeah. i think a lot of people think like that that's that's what the question is hit us up speech science podcast at gmail.com that is the hashtag ss pod shout out or hashtag ss pod do process all right y'all let's jump right into this first article and this was sent over uh originally by michelle as an npr npr article and then marie you found the actual article uh the effects of a statewide pre-kindergarten program on children's achievement and behavior through sixth grade we were always taught early intervention early education leads to greater success uh, children less likely to be kicked out of school, uh, more college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it looks like this article, or not this article, this study says that may not be true. Am I right? So this is a super, super important article. And this is exactly what uh, Carrie Ebert and I have been talking about in our chapter chats that we do from all the books that we read. So we read Most Likely to Succeed, uh, how children succeed and it's really all about you know what is being done in early childhood to set kids up for long-term success with these longitudinal studies uh and there's been a huge push recently over the past uh 10 15 20 years called the cognitive hypothesis which is really all about pushing academics so there's around the country we're seeing less recess time less play time less group work, less hands-on assignments, and there's more focus on hardcore studying, uh, test-taking, uh, really just measurable skills. Everything has to be measured. And alongside this push in schools has also been a uh, rise in things such as like baby Einstein and Kumon centers 
and all of these ways to educate your kids early and get them prepared for long-term success. Uh, so kindergarten classrooms and preschool classrooms across the country, you're seeing less free play and you're seeing more kids at these kidney-shaped tables doing worksheets, learning how to trace letters and learning how to write sentences before their brain is even developmental, developmentally ready to do that. Uh, and now this is a huge, huge study. It was done by NPR and hopefully it gets all the recognition it deserves, but this is creating an unbelievable amount of stress, in some cases trauma on these kids where they're not able to learn through experience. They're not able to learn through play. They're not able to learn through hands-on mental play. So executive functioning basically is internalized mental play. So when you're a kid, all the play you do as a kid manually with your hands eventually becomes internalized and that's executive functioning. That's your ability to problem solve, plan and prioritize. Without play, there's no future executive functioning and executive functioning is a greater predictor of success than IQ. Uh, and we're push, all we're doing is pushing IQ, pushing IQ. And ever since this has happened, America now leads the world in college dropouts. So these kids are getting IEPs with crazy amounts of goals, 504s with crazy amounts of accommodations, and they have it all from kindergarten till, till graduation. And they're going on to college, and yeah, they can get A's on, on their classes, but they can't live independently in the dorms. They can't make friends. They can't manage their own screen time. They can't get up for class on time. Uh, they're in, they don't know how to get food. They don't know how to go to the cafeteria and eat uh, and do all of these things. Uh, and kids are becoming more and more prompt dependent uh, because they're, they're learning to just cram for a test, get a good grade, forget it, move on to the next test. Uh, so this is a groundbreaking study that really shows the harmful effects of the cognitive hypothesis uh, and really what it's doing to these kids and setting them up for actual long-term failure. Yeah, and the, pur the purpose of the pre-K programs have, have thought oh, will prevent retention and all these things. And what this study was actually showing was that it had no effect on retention. Um, and there mm -hmm. were actually some negative effects, um, especially in sixth grade, um, disciplinary infractions, attendance, and receipt of special education services. Um, and I think this is, a, like Mike has been saying, a, a huge study. Um, uh, in my new role as a program specialist, I have different specialized pre-K programs that I, you know, assign SLPs to and, and work with. And I go in and observe students in here. And some of them have speech for like two hours a day and all these services. Like Mike is saying, there's very little playtime because they have services the entire day. Um, yep. So it, it really, uh, it's a longitudinal study, pre-K, sixth grade. The implications of this are huge. And we were talking about Montessori before we got on and, and Montessori is becoming such a great program and becoming more and more sought after because really it just focuses on life skills and community and following a child's lead. And it's not a push on having kids memorize numbers and letters and, uh, and, and skills that they're not ready for. It's teaching them to be more self-sufficient and more independent. Uh, but the more we push these academic skills that uh, in reality are not that helpful to real life. Uh, the vast majority of people don't, you know, use the periodic table on a day-to-day -day basis. I barely use cursive. Uh, 
uh, all, so all of these things that we're pushing in school that are so important for SATs and college acceptance, uh, al along with the cognitive hypothesis, college uh, acceptance rates and tuition have skyrocketed and student debt has skyrocketed. Uh, so a lot of this is pushed by capitalism in general and ways to market to kids and market to families and push families to think my kid has to be the best of the best of the best in everything. Uh, but if, if we're pushing the cognitive hypothesis on kids, we're hurting them. And there are more preschools and more kindergartens in this country today that are all about academics and forgetting about play. Uh, and we've already seen the harmful effects of decreasing recess in elementary school on sensory uh, and, and all of that. Uh, and it's even more harmful to the, to the younger kids. And I'd also like to point out, it says in the conclusion of this article or the study itself, the intent is well-meaning that to provide a pre-K program that, um, what does it say, reflects commitment to improving the life outcomes for children from impoverished circumstances. Um, the intention is good, but the research is showing from this article that it is having long-term effects that do not show what they were hoping. Um, and it, it also warns not to, you know, throw out these pre-K programs just yet. We need to look at all the information um, and, and research more of what needs to be done in these circumstances for sure. Well, if this continues, then the intentions are not so good. There's Absolutely. enough, there's enough research being done now to show the harmful effects on these kids. This, these, this is our most vulnerable population, period, you know, below five years old. Yes. And we know that this is hurting them. It's massively increasing uh, anxiety. These kids are already growing up with social media and screens and all of these things that are harmfully affecting their mental health. And this is really, really affecting them because they're not having time to figure out who they are and learn their own strengths and learn their own needs and learn from other people. They're so focused on learning skills, skills, skills. So yes, it's well-intentioned to set kids up for success, but now that we know when these studies like this exist and we see what's happening in countries that are getting it right, like Finland and places like that, uh, it, it, if this continues, then no, the intentions are no longer, can no longer be scapegoated. Absolutely. One of the things I found interesting in this is they the I pulled it from uh, what part of it I don't remember uh, the negative behavior outcomes kind of talking about what you were talking about in the sixth grade and they said one possibility is that the center based care could be preventing children from developing the internal self-control necessary for long-term development. In particular, classrooms of 24 year olds require behavioral control exerted by the adults. Studies demonstrate that teachers in these circumstances often display a flat to negative affect, one that could lead to children developing negative attentional biases. So the way I read that is that the kids are becoming dependent on the adult to tell them what is right and what is wrong, kind of to keep them in that box. And then as they get older, they start to rebel against the box, I guess is a good way to put it. I, I mean, I'm pulling something else from another part of that article where they talk about in sixth grade, they seem to, to kind of go off the rails there. But I mean, that makes sense. Raising two children right now, one in, or three children, but one in second grade, one in preschool himself, the more you try to tell him, either one of them, what to do, the more they want to try why we're telling them no. It's the same reason that college kids all drink because you tell them no. And then they turn 21 and they stop drinking. 
So you said two things there. You said mm-hmm. in- internal self-control. Yep. And you said dependent on adults. Mm-hmm. And what are those two things? That's exact. That's ex- that's executive functioning. Internal oh. self-control is executive functioning. And we're talking about kids being able to regulate their emotions. There's no learning. There's no making friends. There's no adding to your self-worth at all unless you can regulate your emotions. Uh, and we're talking about prompt dependency on adults. Why do we lead the world in college dropouts? Because kids are graduating high school and they're prompt dependent on IEPs. They're prompt dependent on 504s. They're prompt dependent on parents. They're prompt dependent on teachers. So I often wonder, sorry, Mike, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to yeah, go, go ahead. I often wonder though, like, Marie, you work on the adult side. I almost kind of see the same exact thing for some of our patients that are more severe dementia or more severe stroke, where they get put into these assisted living facilities. And it's almost that same idea that they are not allowed to explore the room. They're told to go to bed at 6 p.m. They get into their PJs at 6.30 and lights down at 7. There is no independent navigation right or not encouraged or maybe discouraged through Mm -hmm. verbal or nonverbal feedback that their mode of communication or the way that they are now isn't okay or it's not acceptable um, which a lot of changes happen after after strokes and brain injuries Um, but anecdotally I'm actually when I was a child I was in a pre-k Montessori school for low-income children and it was tremendously different than the schools that I went to after that. And the, the ways that I was supported as a child and allowed to be myself and have my feelings and have my ideas and do things that I wanted was just such a, it was so different from my, the environment I was growing up in. And, but then also the other schools that I went to, and there was a stark difference after I left Montessori to go to a regular public school. And it just, it, it was just never the same. And I think that I anecdotally would just agree that we need more thoughtful spaces designed for children. And maybe like the article suggested teachers that are more specially trained, you know, if we have teachers that are trained on these on a lot of different grade levels, maybe teachers that have a special certification in pre-K or something where they can, they can provide the responses and the support that the children need at that level. And, and that leads into the conclusion again says, if the programs we have created do not produce the desired effects, these findings themselves should not be dismissed simply because they were unanticipated and unwelcome. Mm-hmm. Rather, they should stimulate creative research into both policies and practices with potential to have the desired effects. Do you guys think, do you all think, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about last week with the cameras in the classroom. Is it a, how do I put this? We have to put academic rigor when kids are in school because of the fear of the feedback of a parent or someone observing that video feed of a kid playing, you know, cause we talked about last week about playing in therapy versus maybe it doesn't look like academic therapy. Is it maybe that same idea that we feel that we have to push 
academics at an early age. And because if we just let kids play and have recess, we can't, it's harder to justify anything, everything. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. But it, it's not, a, a it's not about parents. It's not about parents. It's about standardized. It's about standardized testing. Mm -hmm. and we the have, systems. We, we yeah. have, it's a system. It's a system that we've created with a common core and standardized testing and, uh, if you look at Common Core and how it benefited made massive corporations like Pearson because they were the ones that had the monopoly on the textbooks and all that stuff, everything revolves around standardized testing and the way teachers are evaluated because in, because in, in, in America, America is one of the only countries that grades teachers based on their students' performance on standardized tests. So if you have a class and they don't perform well on standardized tests, it hurts your employment as a teacher. So teachers now are forced to teach to the test and they can't teach in their own unique way. They have to figure out what the standardized test is going to look like, what's it going to do, and everything revolves and there's no collaboration, there's no communication between teachers, there's no communication between same schools in the district. It's literally every teacher for themselves, feast or famine, and they have to really, everything revolves around standardized testing and bringing, basically bringing capitalism into education. I saw a really great TikTok the other day um, that a kindergarten teacher, her parents saved her kindergarten like progress report and report card mm. from when she was in kindergarten. And she put it next to the, the standards that her kindergarten students are expected to have. And when she was a child, it was like, maybe knows the alphabet and whatever. And these kids are like, can count to a hundred, you know, and I'm exaggerating. I don't, I don't know what was on there, but there was a stark difference of what was expected 20 years ago versus what kids are doing now. And that's part of what you're saying, Matt. I think parents have those expect expectations mm -hmm. of they want their kid to succeed. They want the, the best education, but, and Mike saying the whole college dropout thing. I, as a when I was working with high school students, there were students being forced to go to college that one had no interest and sh should have nope. probably gone to trade school, should have gone to something that they were interested in and going to succeed. So I think there are a lot of systems in place that are causing this, the early academics that, like Mike is saying, we should be focusing on play and social interactions and all this. And, and we need to be looking at what's happening in, in these schools. America well, is America is one of the few countries where it's basically okay, go to college or work at McDonald's. And all of these trade, but the idea of going into the trades is almost like frowned upon. Mm -hmm. uh, but you learn about other countries that are doing education correct because America is probably like uh, it's every year is going down on the list in terms of education quality. Uh, kids are learning about the trades and they have mentors and they have on-job experience in high school. So it, like, like in Finland, for example, we read this book, Finnish Lessons in, in the book club, this book right here. Uh, and it talks all about how Finland uh, became so successful. They became like top five, number one in the world in, edu in education. At a young age, kids are given mentors. So they're taken out of class to have a counselor and counseling is part of the curriculum. Every kid gets mandatory counseling. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's a non-academic period, a chance for them to set goals, set long-term goals, set short-term goals, talk to a licensed counselor. Uh, and then every kid before they graduate gets on the job experience. They do multiple internships. They interview people. Schools are involved in, in the community. It's not just stuck in the school building all day. 
lots of recess, lots of play, lots of project-based learning. And kids in Finland, you have to reach a certain amount of credits to graduate. Over 95% of the kids there go beyond the expected amount and take more classes because education, mm. is, education is so revered there. And if that was offered here in America, nobody would do it. They'd say, I'm done. I'm, I'm, there's no point in me being here. Sesame Street had a writer come out the other day, uh, kind of go back to your point, Rachel, where they were talking about how uh, the reason why we grew up with Sesame Street talking about teaching us letters and numbers in some of those basic letter sense is because now it's expected that the kids already know that by the time they're Sesame Street age. So that's why they don't focus on it. And that's just kind of a wild thought that our kids that are watching Sesame Street are too old to be learning letters. And and a very privileged view. Mm, yeah, that's true too. Yep. Yeah. And in my Montessori school, I learned how to play Mancala. What is that? Nice. No, that, oh, that, that, that the marble, the marble yeah. game. It's a really yep. fun marble game. <gasps> we just learned so many fun, different things and it never felt like we were being pressured to learn academics or anything like that. It was just... It was a really beautiful environment. I, it makes me wonder, do you feel like we're, are we at a crossroads with this or now that mm -hmm. we're seeing this as a big problem, do you think there's going to be actual change? No. Same. Absolute, absolutely, Same. absolutely not. This is America. The, this is America. Come on. The priority is still going to be education, education. I mean, I can't tell you no how many way. times you have academics the priority is academics not education I guess I should clarify but I was just having a conversation with one of my friends who the has a newborn baby and the grandfather is you know oh my gosh he's a genius and it's like he has done nothing he's two months old he's you know and and it's this priority of like this the academics you know they're they're trying to have him watch these shows and and all these things to make sure he is the smartest he is this and it, it starts early. It it's ingrained. We, we are basically. I was it a year. We're a year away from having Betsy DeVos as a Secretary of Education. So, <laughs> come on. I you know? I think the problem is, and and I truly do. I think that you've got so much money that can be spent in the education sense that we are nowhere near the precipice of where this could go wrong it's not about it's not about having and, money to spend it's about how much money can be made and that's what i mean so that's, it's like, that's exactly what it is people are you've people, got, are getting, people are getting rich off of public education you've got private schools or charter schools that can charge i mean we're looking at we send our our youngest our middle i'm not our youngest our middle kid to the preschool in the district and i get that preschool costs money and it's like two or three hundred dollars a month for preschool which is fine you know what and the preschool they do more playing than they do learning which i'm 100 percent okay with but like there are other private preschools that are in the three and five thousand dollar a month range and they guarantee these kids are going to be coming out reading and they're going to be doing math skills and they're going to come out with the skills that they should have by second grade and I think that you've got too many snake oil salesmen who prey on parents who only want the best for their kids and are willing to spend that kind of money. And I don't know. I, I think part of it is privilege, like you were saying, Rachel. But I also think there is a 
they prey on the people that don't have the money to spend and they guilt them into taking out massive credit card debt and loans to get their kids into this area. And I feel like until we find a way to get that kind of money out of the system, we're, we're nowhere near where this could go wrong, if that makes sense. Well, I hope that this study is going to be looked at and really making people consider what do we need to do to change what's happening in this pre-K classroom mm-hmm. in order to have the desired outcomes, which is, you know, preventing retention or, you know, the, the disciplinary issues that they're finding here. What do we need to do to make this the desired outcome? And just real quick on the study for anyone that's wondering, it was done over 10 years at 79 programs, including 3,000 or almost 3,000 students across the state of Tennessee. So they said it was about the best randomized, natural randomization of a study they could find. So I feel like we should- randomized control trial. Right. I feel like we should take a little bit of a break. We'll come back. We'll let the informed SLP uh, come back and tell us something new in the adult world. We're also on the other side. Come back and look at the SS Pod News and well being in a cognitive uh, link. You're listening to Speech Science. And now for our regular research review brought to you by the informed SLP. The Informed SLP releases a monthly newsletter that brings you plain language reviews of only the newest, most clinically applicable research, keeping you up to date on advances in the field and saving you tons of time. So let's get to it. For peer relationships, keep it interesting. This is a review of two studies. The first is entitled, A Different Environment for Success, a Mixed Methods Exploration of Social Participation Outcomes Among Adolescents on the Autism Spectrum in an Inclusive, Interest-Based School Club from the International Journal of Developmental Disabilities. The second article is entitled, Combining Preferred Activities with Peer Support to Increase Social Interactions Between Preschoolers with ASD and Typically Developing Peers, from the Journal of Positive Behavior Interventions. Looking for ways to support autistic kids' social relationships in a neurodiversity-affirming way? Start by leaning into special interests. It's a win-win. We have a special note here that Emily Penrod and VTC make significant contributions to the content of this review. You can read more about them by checking out the print version of this review. We've talked a lot about using peer-mediated interventions to support autistic children in the past, but when you start looking into them with an ableism-aware lens, things get problematic quickly. From fostering weird power dynamics with non-autistic peers deputized as mini-therapists, to centering neurotypical play and social communication patterns while pathologizing normal autistic behavior, to pushing for excessive eye contact, to encouraging masking behaviors and increasing autistic stress and burnout, to intervention frameworks that ignore the double empathy problem and put the burden of change only on autistic people. There is a ton 
ton to unpack. And while we grapple with these critical fundamental challenges to our SLP operating principles, we have big caseloads to be serving in person, virtually, magically, well, today. Here's a foothold, complete with research support from two new papers. Embrace your client's special interests as a bridge for increasing positive peer interactions naturally. Engagement in shared interests is an important social support identified by autistic people, which fosters natural social opportunities, connections with like-minded people, and a sense of belonging. Compared with social skills instructions, adolescents on the spectrum reported a stronger preference for social interventions based on shared activities with peers with common interests, which provide a natural focus for peer interaction. And that whole thing is a quote from Chen et al. 2021. Here's the recipe. A group of kids with varying neurotypes engaged voluntarily in mutually preferred activities with supportive adults around, but not dominating things. Supporting inclusive preschool classrooms? You can follow who at all and bring out toy sets that are highly preferred by the autistic and non-autistic kids to get them playing and talking together. And don't let your own ideas of what play should look like trick you into breaking up the natural fun. Grown-ups like using toys the way other grown-ups design them to be used, but kids are way more creative than that. If your caseload runs more to middle school tinkerers, you can take a page from Chen et al's journal article and set up a maker club for interested kids both on and off the spectrum. They followed the Ideas Maker program, which works as a lunch club or an after-school activity. The curriculum is freely available with a link we've provided in the written review. Without actually providing direct intervention and social communication, the researchers and teachers noticed increased peer interaction, reciprocity, and relationship development between autistic and non-autistic participants. They suggest that strength and support-based approaches like this may result in more authentic relationships and less social-emotional distress than traditional skill-building interventions. Authentic relationships, less distress, and indirect intervention? That's a win-win-win for the kids, SLPs, and ethics. Note that neither of these studies included non-speakers or AAC users. All the autistic children communicated with their peer using, quote, fluent speech. Need more ideas? If you currently support social interaction groups through, quote, lunch bunch or similar conversation groups, try reinventing them as interest-based clubs themed on whatever your students and others love. Pokemon, nail art, juggling, other thing that the kids are into and I have to slyly look up on my phone under the table so as to not appear ancient and hopelessly out of touch. If you're a lucky duck with meaningful consult and indirect service time built into your workload, you could collaborate with your teammates who already sponsor clubs to help make them more inclusive. Because what sounds like a better way of making friends to you? Making friends class or a low-pressure environment with a small group of people sharing a common interest? Thanks for listening to this review. If you're interested in more, come visit us at www.theinformedslp.com. Tell us how you put the research into practice, or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Informed SLP.
We'll get to that article about the link between well-being and cognition in just a moment, but we want to take this moment to thank Presence Learning for supporting episode number 155 and to remind you at home to head over to our website where you can sign up for an opportunity to win one year of their therapy essentials. And when we talk about therapy essentials, we're really talking teletherapy. And why would you choose teletherapy and join the Presence Learning Network of Speech-Language Pathologists? Well, it allows you to serve students remotely. You also get to decide how much you work and when you work. You can protect yourself and your family during these uncertain times. Take back your commuting and drive time and join a network of peers for support and collaboration. To learn more and apply, go to presencelearning.com and click on the apply button at the top of the page. Welcome back to Speech Science, episode number 155. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Rachel Archambo. Hi. Hello. Marie Severson. Hey there. Hello. And Mike McLeod. Hi, Matt. Hello. Michelle Wintering is out this week, so we are getting the fearsome foursome that you have in front of you. Oh. All right. So as we start this part of the show, I have to ask you all something. What is the best thing you own in your therapy room, therapy, material? What is the best thing? And while you think about it, I'm going to tell you my favorite thing that I own is a link to a website called Conversational. Uh, what is it? Conversation Theories. It's basically 350 different conversation cards, conversation starters. That's the page I was looking for. And they're just silly little things that I use in therapy that help fill some time or they're icebreakers or they're pragmatic stuff. Or for my adult patients, they're fun. Like what would you, which monument would you destroy if you could get rid of? So like, they're kind of fun. Uh, today I use that one. And someone told me that they would get rid of the empire state building. Uh, and I was like, why? And they said, because it doesn't mean anything now that it's not the tallest building. And I was like, huh. I mean, it's like lots of businesses that use that, but you go, dude, whatever. <laughs> All right. So what about y'all? What is one of your favorite pieces in your therapy room? Rachel? I have mine right here. This Ooh. is a Hoberman sphere. <laughs> and bad. it's a spiky ball thing that when you pull it, it opens up. And then when you push it, it smushes together. I use this, um, I used it somewhat as a fidget. So all my high schoolers, I had them around the room. They would talk, they would have this and it would help them sit. Um, I also use it for breath support, like showing people mm. how the lungs work and everything. Um, I use it for showing coaches of guided breathing and everything. I would have my high school students lead it to the rest of the class as following directions. Um, so there's just so many activities that you could do with this. And when I do present, I usually have this in my hand and I have everyone do a guided I reading, but this is my favorite. Mike, what about you? What is something that you have that is your favorite? Oh man. Um, I'm a big fan of the whiteboard. I'm a big whiteboard okay. guy. All right. I also recently got a Nintendo GameCube. Mm-hmm. So that's been you awesome. have to get monkey ball, monkey ball. Oh, I got monkey ball. I got <laughs> See, monkey Mike, ball. talking got to you ball. makes me feel like I should open a private practice for EF kids just to play video games and teach EF. 
It's actually uh, one of Dr. Russell Barkley, who's the worldwide leader on ADHD. One of his recommendations as an incentive is to have like old school games for the kids. Like don't have like Fortnite and like games of today have old school things Why? for them to uh, kind of work towards, which, uh, which I'm all about because it's not, it's not like directly motivating and it's not feeding into what's causing huh. behaviors and behaviors in the home. So it's not like they're playing like online Fortnite or, you know, Madden or whatever it oh, is. That makes sense. They're playing like a game from, you know, the olden days, 2008. It's just removed enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Marie, what is something you have in your therapy bag of tricks that is your favorite? I got to be honest. I'm not a big therapy tricks gal. Okay. I... I don't usually bring a lot to therapy. I like to use what's in the environment, very person-centered, but I love a good whiteboard. And I also love my iPad because my iPad has great apps that I can use and mm -hmm. access to the internet. So I can go on websites like Pexels, for example, oh, which yeah. has free videos and pictures you can use for everything. Aphasia therapy, you could use it as a conversation starter. Um, you could use it to look up something that person's interested in and use that in therapy. So um, I usually first start with what do you want to work on or what are we working on? And then I'll, I'll bring something from the environment or on my iPad. We Bye. used to do a segment on the show, which was where we challenged people to use a simple household item in therapy. And it goes back to, I had a professor and it's Janice Wright, who we use the quote at the end of the show, who used to always tell us that if you were a really good clinician, all you would need is a pen, a piece of paper and a deck of cards, and you could do an entire hour of therapy. So I get I think, it, man. I think all four of us can do that. I, I, I love deck of cards. I'm sorry. What did you say, Marie? Oh, I just said I would agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's dive into the second article of the day. This is coming out of the side post. It is well-being and cognitive abilities are linked throughout childhood. And I feel like we kind of already knew this, but there's a nice part to have a study support what we are doing. And I think it's also a wonderful link from what we talked about at the beginning of the show, where we put a increased demand on academics. And then we're surprised that kids fall apart when the language shifts in that fifth, sixth, and seventh grade year from teacher-led to student-led. And now there's studies coming out that says, hey, if we work on improving the child's ability to be mentally and emotionally happy, guess what? Language demands decrease as well as they grow up. What, what were your guys' thoughts with this article? I'm also really interested from the PTSD side, you know, Rachel, so we'll, we'll let you serve this one up for us. Well, so the first thing that they had, the first result was saying that well-being was associated with cognitive ability. Six to seven-year-olds with lower well-being also had lower cognitive ability. Cognition and well-being are linked. And I think that makes sense. Like, it. I don't know if I needed the study for that. That was just what I assumed, but it's great to have that on in writing, you know. Um, I, I see that, you know, I work with students that have had trauma and there's definitely the link between the cognitive ability, for sure, um, that have experienced trauma at a lower age. Um, and I'm trying to see some other information on there, the links that they identified 
different trajectories among specific subpopulations of children, um, which revealed certain risk and resilience factors. So children with worsening externalizing symptoms like impulsivity and aggression, Mike, executive functioning, and smaller gains. I thought you were saying I had I know. those things. No. <laughs> smaller gains in planning scored lower in parental closeness and that was really interesting because i didn't know that they were going to go into that parental closeness part of it um they also had a subgroup of children with poor math skills and an increase in loneliness in the second wave were less close to their parents had lower socioeconomic status and had fewer quality friendships so that was the part that i was i shocked about how they related you know math scores and and vocabulary and all these different areas of cognitive ability to um what's the word i'm looking for cognitive well-being well-being there we go and then specific cognitive functions with well-being so some of them were linked and others weren't um, Rachel, I have a question for you. One of the notes in the article was about how behavioral issues can emerge before deficits in cognition. What kind of implications does that have for the students that you work with? I think that that's huge. And, and we have, you know, many of the students that come on our caseload, especially when they're preschool, they don't have the language to tell us what's going on. They don't have the language to tell us like, what trauma that they've experienced or how they're feeling their emotions. They also don't have the coping strategies, which we're talking about. Um, They don't have the executive functioning to, to, you know, impulse control. So we have all these areas that are contributing to wellness, well-being. um, And we're seeing that in this study, just, you know, laid out between math skills, vocabulary. I think it's so interesting that they were able to differentiate between those, but we are seeing this in students that are traumatized. Um, It it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Loneliness was also something that they talked about. Um, And I I found that interesting that they were able to go into that. Um, Future studies will need to establish whether the links between vocabulary loneliness are causal. We need to know more information about that, but just talking about um, interventions can include parent training, family support, and school-based programs. Um, interventions aimed at addressing behavioral prog- pro- problems and fostering verbal skills could be promising for improving cognition and well-being outcomes. I think that's going to be really helpful. Um, it did say having a few good friendships is linked to both better vocabulary and loneliness development. And I think that's what Mike has been saying about like the social skills and everything. Um, the, the good friendships you have, I had many kids in high school that didn't have friends, weren't encouraged to have friends or didn't want to have other friends, didn't know how to have other friends. Um, and they reported being lonely or didn't know how to go about making friends. Um, I, I think all of this contributes to well-being. Um, th- this is a really interesting study. Hmm. Yeah, and, and to me, it's not. This is not, you know, the chicken or the egg. What came first thing? This is this. It, it's undisputed. It's well-being. There's not going to be cognitive ability if there's not well-being first. Uh, it's a, it's it's basically a big fancy study saying people who uh, have a positive upbringing, people who have resources, people who are able to feel safe and comfortable, learn better than those who don't. And what an endorsement for speech therapy, right? And the importance of what we do with those verbal skills. Exactly. Absolutely. As, as I was reading this, I was also kind of wondering, 
for, I, I work in the middle school and I'll get a lot of those students that are on the verge of between pragmatic kids and also language kids or, you know, expressive receptive language kids. And we always take, you know, what is the most important skill to target during the school year? What are we going to work on the IEP? And what is it that we can do differently than what a teacher is doing differently? And it's always a toss up between, do I spend time working on pragmatics or is teaching this kid vocabulary skills going to help with, you know, academic success or whatever we're mentoring, whatever we're trying to target. And this article kind of made me realize that maybe it's both in a weird way, like teaching that pragmatic part so that that kid can have a social structure. So then that way, when you go and do target vocabulary, they feel more comfortable or they feel more success than presenting or communicating answers with their peers. Uh, AKA, I feel like I just gave myself more work uh, to do in the middle school setting. Um, what I found interesting though, in when you dive into the actual article, um, they say it's in line with an emerging body of literature highlighting that socioeconomic status, friendship quality, and relationships to parents linked, and they underscore the importance of social support in schools to improve the well-being. I wonder if that means that we should be looking more at mental health support systems than what we currently have. I mean, most school districts have, what, one mental health therapist on board for the district? Or they work with the local hospital and they have two or three available and there's a wait list. Is this something where we need to be part of that IEP team and say, listen, we need behavioral therapy or, or whatever it is for these students therapy. as well. Say that again. Behavioral therapy. Well, not behavioral therapy, but what is it? Um, men like mental health. health yeah, mental, Men yeah, mental health, health counselor. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how it is. And in, in, I know in my district, because are the sixth largest di district of the country. Um, we have like school psychologists travel from school to school, but they're centralized, they're placed at schools. We also have social workers that are the family counselors that are attached to students with IEPs only. So if they can say that, like if I have a language only student, but they are so highly anxious, something that we can attach mental health counseling on their IEP, but you really have to like say that this is affecting their academics because of this. Um, if, if they're not getting that support, I, I think that is going to contribute to lower well-being outcomes. Um, and, and also along the lines of, you know, we have the social emotional um, language um, that I know in our district that said that we have to spend like 50 a day like teachers have to spend 15 minutes a day going over that I don't know how much that is actually being done because that's 15 minutes out of the teacher's day but that is the purpose of that is to give kids the language the coping skills um, to let us know what's going on um, or, or being able to regulate self-regulate so when you don't have that it is going to lead to poorer outcomes and lower well-being that makes sense yeah and that there's such a connection to that for the people that I see, you know, the person-centered care movement, you have to treat the whole person and you can't separate the child from their family environment, from their, you know, potential trauma history, from, you know, food insecurity, all of those things that are going to, you're going to see that come out, I'm assuming during the school day. 
Yeah. Sorry. I, my, I was trying to unmute my mic and it wouldn't work on my side. <laughs> if you want to add to that, please head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com and email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Y'all, I'm really excited. Guess what returns? What? SS Pod News. It's where we look at three articles quick, quick, quick. And just kind of get one or two sentence reaction. And the first one is coming out of, where's it out of? I lost it. Oh no, there it is. The, how do I say this? The JAMA network? JAMA. JAMA. Time to retire the concept of the transient ischemic attack. Marie, this is right up your alley. Why should we care about this? You're killing me with the two sentence limit. It's just not fair. Okay. Well, there's your two. Thank you. I'm, Thanks oh, for playing. Oh no, I'm already. <laughs> I'm... All right. Bottom line is that researchers are thinking that transient ischemic attacks um, should be considered minor ischemic strokes and that a lot of them with proper imaging don't actually resolve, but instead result in brain injury. So when we're doing education with patients, we should be considering their history of TIA and hopefully the rest of the healthcare world will get on board with taking those seriously so we can prevent strokes and um, brain injuries in general. I love it. Wow. Rachel, Mike, anything? That was, that was well said. How can you follow that up? Fair that enough. was, uh, yeah, like that's, that that's some fancy stuff right there. That's, that's really, that's really fascinating. And, and of course, you know, we work with younger kids. So, you know, the only thing I really hear about with brain injury is like football and concussions and things like that. So just hearing, hearing that is, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Mike, that is a wonderful segue to the next one. Is mild cognitive impairment reversible in a cohort study of more than 600 women ages 75 or older? About a third of those reverted to normal cognition at some point during follow-up, which sends the encouraging message that mild cognitive impairment may be reversible. I see this a lot of times with my patients where we, we talked about it before, the social impact of isolation. And you've got a patient who is doing decently to okay, something happens, they lose the support structure, they are isolated, it's ICU-itis or senioritis or whatever you want to call it. They don't know what day it is because every day in the hospital is the same thing. The only person coming in is your nurse to tell you that your BP is fine. The doctor walks in at two in the morning and leaves. And then they go home. They're on a rollinator. They can't go to the dining hall like they want to. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, why is grandma not know what day it is? And then they get speech, they get social, and they come back. Is I'm not surprised by this. I think this is interesting because I know that it takes a little bit of effort to get diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, sometimes mm -hmm. um, an assessment with a neuropsychologist. And I never considered that it could be reversed. I know, I knew that it didn't always result in dementia, but I didn't know that it could reverse. I just, it was, this was just totally shocking to me. I was very encouraged. Um, I thought it was fascinating that some of the protective potential protective factors for this were um, higher years of, or more years of education, uh, strong written language skills, um, and then genetics, of course. But those are some things to keep in mind, I think, when 
you see mild cognitive impairment on the problem list of somebody you're chart reviewing um, mm -hmm. to check and make sure that, you know, check the date of that diagnosis and keep following up with them and doing that retesting. So you said something funny or not funny, but you said something interesting when you talked about dementia. I make sure that I purposely use the term dementia when talking to the family to try to get rid of that stigma of dementia. And I explain like, you know, hey, there's dementia through acquired and there's dementia through progressive. And I try to take away that stigma because automatically they go, oh, my gosh, it's dementia. And I saw this as us and the mom's going to lose her memory. Oh, my gosh. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily. Your dad had a fall and the memory loss is most likely linked link to that. All right. The last article, uh, we just got closer to finding a link between Alzheimer's and circadian rhythms. And again, we talk about sundowners. We talk about not getting good sleep and patients just being told to go to bed at 6 p.m. when it's dark outside. And then we're surprised that they get up at three in the morning to wander around the nursing facility, confused because it's three in the morning. Again, I'm not surprised here. This one was exciting, just <laughs> mostly because for obvious reasons, but listen, we, we know that sleep is important. I think anyone who works with adults knows, knows that um, sleep trouble is a common symptom in the elderly for a variety of reasons. Um, but the circadian rhythms are tied to our body clocks, which governs our sleep and wake cycles. So poor sleep habits are going to throw these clocks off, which can lead to chronic sleeping problems. And according to the article, these sleep problems can start years before the symptoms of Alzheimer's emerge. So there is potentially a critical period to catch that and work on resolving that to potentially prevent or delay Alzheimer's symptoms. Mike and Rachel, do you all ever spend any time with adults or are you y'all pretty much child, child youth? No, I mean, right now I'm not, but um, right before COVID for about a year, I was working at a, uh, a skilled nursing facility. Um, I started uh, my full-time internship in grad school was in acute care. Um, and I actually thought I was going to do um, and I did home health. So I've done a bunch of different settings with, with adults. It just kind of happened that as a CF, no settings would hire me and I got put into the schools and then I was, you know, trying to do home health and all these other settings, but I thought I was going to be working with adults. Mike, do you do much with adults or mostly just teens at this point? The only thing I really do with adults is just like the parent coaching. So that's, okay. uh, so just working with parents, but, uh, I do not have any adult, uh, patients or students. I, I feel like when we look at what we just kind of talked about the, the, reversal of mild cognitive impairment, the changing of the idea between TIA to, to a real terminology. We look at fixing sleep patterns. A lot of this is going against what we're doing currently in a lot of these assisted living facilities. You know, I just left the floor where I had to remind the aides working on the floor Hey, it is only 7:30. We do not need to put the dim night lights on just yet, and there is no reason to kick everyone off the floor just because it's easier on you to put them in pajamas and then lock the door so that they don't wander. But I it, uh, I mean it, it 
I don't know. There's a Again, lot I want to say about that. <laughs> there, that's We talked about this last time, the systems mm-hmm. in place. So if you have nurses, I don't know what productivity standards they have or what they need to get done. They've got a million people. Like how many people are on their wing or how many patients do they have? Um, there, there's so many systems in place that as well as caregiver burnout, I'm sure that they're just like, you know what, I got things to do. I have to, you know, make sure that everyone's in bed, everyone's in their room. There's a lot of systems in place that are contributing to this, but um, I, I get it. It's, it's not, it makes sense that putting people to, to, you know, go to sleep at seven 30 is going to make them wake up at three 30 in the morning or something like that. Right. Or even the fluorescent lights. I'm very sensitive to fluorescent lights. And I know that they've done studies like with that hatch alarm clock thing about how the sun naturally rises and mm. that makes people wake up a little bit better. So I'm sure li- living in a sniff and there's these fluorescent lights and there's people constantly coming in that is affecting their circadian rhythm as well. So this is not surprising to me, Um, but it is interesting that they're saying that maybe we can avoid that, you know, progression um, by looking at the circadian rhythm. Yeah. It really hits home for me because I find myself often being the one to bring up how sleep or sleep aids may be affecting someone's cognition Uh, mental health, things like that. And um, I think just being an aware medical SLP or SLP in general, or family member can be helpful for to educate everyone because I think we keep our healthcare workers pretty busy in our country. So not everybody has time Mm -hmm. or the interest in keeping up with this. So if we keep ourselves informed, I think that we can sort of help everyone else out too. Yes. The SS pod news. I love it. Every now and then we will get a bunch of articles and be able to, to throw those up and they'll also be linked down in the show notes. And we want to know from you. So make sure you email us speech science podcast at gmail.com. All right. So at this point, it is a segment that was formerly known as the Asha spotlight. It is a question that we get to ask and say, what is Asha doing right what is Asha doing wrong? And in the new segment, we are going to call it. What's up with Asha? What's up with Asha? And this week, what's up with Asha? Hey guys, they're doing something good. Asha came out uh, with a statement on Brigham Young University's administration a decision to deny speech services for transgender clients. Uh, the last line says Asha strongly urges Brigham Young University to adhere to Asha's code of ethics as well as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints policies and guidelines cited above, reverse its decision and restore voice and communication services for transgender clients. I know uh, Ruchi Capella, our friend over at the Hindsight Project, uh, that whole project is about transgender voices. I would love to invite her on air to talk about what kind of impact this has for the community. But I know for a darn good fact that our license, our jobs are not to make any, you have no personal, what am I trying to think? No personal opinion on the client you serve. You serve to aid and help. And this kind of stuff coming from a university just really pisses me off. What's up with BYU is the real question. (laughs) What the hell were they thinking? Seriously. (sighs) That is insanity. 
It's very, it's just a step backwards, really. It's, it just seems almost out of place. Mm -hmm. um, it's completely out of place. It doesn't make any sense. It's like denying treatment to like not giving someone the medicine. It is denying need. treatment. Yeah. It, that's, it's, it, it, for that to happen in today's world, just literally makes no sense. But huge shout out to Asha. So I yeah. like it that we get to say what's up with Asha and there's a positive to say what's up with Asha. So let us know speech science podcast at gmail.com as we put the show to bed. It's my favorite part of the night. And I was explaining to y'all in a Facebook message. The reason we never end with therapy is because Angie Merced, the wonderful SLP burnout coach always tells us to make sure that we are balancing life and I couldn't care less about what you guys are doing in therapy this week because I truly care about what you all are doing in real life. So what is something that you are super excited about in the next week? And for me, uh, I have started doing slot cars with my oldest boys. Um, and slot cars are like model trains except Hot Wheels on a track. And the Daytona 500 is this weekend and I am excited to get my kids into being gearheads just as much as I am. Uh, I couldn't turn a wrench to save my life, but I can change my brakes and do some other things on my car. So I'm, I, I love cars. I love speed. I love racing. I'm excited to be enjoying it with my sons this weekend. Uh, who wants to go first? What are you all looking forward to this weekend? Or this week, I should say. Well, Matt, I always appreciate the reminder that we are people too. Sometimes I got to remind myself to do something non-speech related. So I am looking forward to getting back on my very neglected Duolingo app to work on French. Ooh, that's language, your that's language related. No, <laughs> Not, but that's fun. What was your longest streak? It's Jason. What's oh, your my longest, streak? it was like 56 days. Wow. Awesome. But wow. I only started in... December. Okay. So. My buddy just posted, he made it to 365 days and they gave him a little sunshine badge. Nice. The so. gamification on that app <laughs> is unbelievable. There's some pretty funny Duolingo memes with the, uh, the angry owl. Who, oh, like, no way. I've got to see those. He, he gets mad at you when you, uh, nice. when you don't log in. Amazing. I have gotten some of those, um, uh, sassy notifications about how I've not been on. So I'll yeah. be back. I love it. Now, are were you fluent in French before you dove into the Duolingo French or was this something that you had never done before? No. So I was, I was doing Spanish. I'm also still doing uh, Spanish, okay. but I got a, I got a client who speaks French and I just felt really motivated to learn at least the basics. And I feel like it's a perfect way to bookend this episode that I stole something from Rachel and misattributed it to somebody. So if I misattribute this next one, but like I was listening to somebody else's podcast or it was one of you three. And they said, the reason our letters go after our name is to remind us that they are an addition to who we are, not who we are. Hmm. I like that. I love that. So again, if it was one of the three of you, I apologize. <laughs> I know it wasn't Mark Marin this time because he wouldn't know what a speech <laughs> therapist is. <laughs> Rachel or Mike, what are you all looking forward to this week? I kind of just want to take it easy this weekend. I don't have any plans. Um, I, I have dinner plans tomorrow night with um, a few friends. Other than that, I really just want to take this weekend for self-care and my form of self-care is 
Netflix and listening Ooh. to my audiobooks. So, what's your show on Netflix right now? I, I actually haven't been on Netflix in a really long time because I've been on this audiobook kit kick so i'm really looking forward to scrolling through and seeing what's there and what catches my eye so i don't have any plans right now love it love it mike what about you what are you looking forward to this week uh this weekend i'll be going back up to new york uh to see a few friends i haven't seen in a long time that's awesome now will you be going to the city or just upstate or uh both uh so city and then an airbnb uh upstate very nice. Very nice. Mm-hmm. We want to hear times. from you. We want to hear from you at home. So make sure you're on our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. On there, you can also sign up for the Presence Learning Giveaway. Uh, you can also find us on the Discord. Marie and Rachel, you signed up for the Discord. Mike, are you back on our Discord yet or did you jump off of there? I jumped off, man. Jump back on. I'm sharing my wordles and my nerdles on there. <laughs> I don't need to see. That I, sounds I don't, so terrible, but y'all need, knew what I meant. I don't, uh, I don't need. I don't need to see any of those things. Oh come on! I got it in four tries today. Also, you can check out our link to merchandise on there if you want a sweet-looking speech science. Should I get a T-shirt? Oh, yeah. Our opening music tonight was "Please Listen Carefully" by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share like license. Our bump music is County Fair Rock copyrighted John Deku. Find his music at soundcloud.com slash dirt dog music. And if you're like John Deku and you want to create music for our show, we will never turn it down. That was what John did. He listened to it because his wife was listening to it and he created us a bump music. So if you would like to create something, we would love to feature it on air. Uh, the informed SLP used at the count by broke for free. It's licensed under a creative commons and attribution license. And the slow burn is our closing music by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a creative commons attribution license in the immortal words of Janice, Wright: Always be a willow. The Oak looks mighty, but it will break in the storm. The willow will bend and return to form for the missing willow, Michelle and current uh, willows, Rachel, Marie and Mike. I'm Matt until next week. So long, everybody. This episode of Speech Science was brought to you by our friends over at Presence Learning. And if you go to our website, you can sign up for an opportunity to win one year of their therapy essentials. And therapy essentials are useful if you're looking to go into teletherapy. Are you ready to join the thousands of clinicians who have turned to teletherapy to serve students? while building a flexible career to meet their own needs? Join the Presence Learning Network and work with a community of speech-language pathologists and a support team that cares about you and the children you serve. I know I've said this before, but that was the hardest part about moving into a teletherapy realm is that I love communicating and talking with other SLPs. So that community feels important when you're becoming a new therapist or when you're an old therapist. It's always so helpful. You'll be working with bright, energetic people who are committed every day to opening up access to service for students and making a lasting impact in the world. Don't wait. Go to PresenceLearning.com. That's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G.com. And click on Apply as a Clinician at the top of the homepage.
Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. And rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.